0: Welcome to Speaking Out.
1: We're mainly discussing land rights and economic
2: empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining exploration. And ener- talk a little bit about uh, indigenous
3: constitutional recognition. Those do
2: With Larissa Barrett, it's a fresh view coming on on ABC Radio. There's all, always seems to be record spending, but no <laughs> outcomes that would show that that money is being spent in an appropriate way. So $5.4 billion for the Indigenous Advancement Strategy. There's a lot of work to be done around where that money is going. Lots of other interesting things. Home ownership, I thought was a particularly good one. Some money for impacts around COVID
4: and money to oversee the closing the gap. The hits and misses in the federal budget for Indigenous Australians and a new Indigenous voice joins the Australian Senate.
1: To be able to elevate grassroots black voices in that place is something that I don't think has been represented yet and I will continue to fight for our people. You know, there's a lot of unfinished business. We've got too many deaths of our people and too much destruction of our country And I think that all Australians, once they know the truth, will get on board.
4: This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. The federal budget handed down by the Morrison government earlier this month is viewed as the first step in our recovery from the devastating impact of the COVID 19 pandemic. Investment in infrastructure and business are key priorities as the government looks to pull the country out of its first recession in three decades. But is their strategy sound? And what does it all mean for Indigenous Australians? To help provide some clarity, I I'm joined this evening by Minister for Indigenous Australians, Ken Wyatt. Minister Wyatt, welcome back to Speaking Out.
5: It's great to be with you again, Larissa. It's been a long time.
4: It has too long. And we'll get into an Indigenous-specific focus shortly. But firstly, what are your overall impressions of this year's budget? Actually, I think it's
5: going to serve us extremely well because we've got programs that are embedded in other portfolios, which I think is absolutely important as well as the mainstream elements of uh, the savings in to the pockets with tax cuts. And on top of that, uh, programs that provide uh, networks and support for families. So. It's extremely beneficial. And then, of course, on top of that, we have the Indigenous-specific within our own portfolio.
4: Well, that's a good point to ask you about, that Indigenous portfolio. What are the key takeaways from your perspective in the budget for Indigenous people?
5: Well, the Eastern Indigenous Agency's advancement strategy has now $5.4 billion in total. In addition to our portfolio, there is 4 billion to Aboriginal health, with $90 uh, million being made available earlier this year. But we'll also provide additional programs in terms of $150 million over three years to expand Indigenous businesses, Australia's Indigenous home ownership, which means that our people can get a loan, buy a new home, and be able to develop their own wealth through home ownership and once they get to a certain level they transition to other sources of funding and we free that up and we bring another family on. There's $100 million million to finalise the housing program in Queensland which is a significant outlay over a period of time. $46.5 million over four years for the National Agreement on Closing the Gap. $10.1 million for the Productivity Commission to provide an independent oversight and accountability of progress under the National Agreement for Closing the Gap. $39.8 million for over four years for the Klondar Foundation. $10 million for AIATSIS to continue the successful return of cultural heritage. And then bringing forward $5.4 million for the Office of the Registrar of Indigenous Corporations to enable them to make the reforms that are required, including a director identification number if people are in organisations. We then have 3.9 million to extend the Time to Work Employment Services Program to 2022, and that'll help our people prepare for employment following their release from prison. We also have another portfolio, 4.1 million over two years to create four new Indigenous River Ranger Groups, in the Murray-Darling Basin, so that is a great initiative given the work going on there. 27 million for the regional arts package, 3.5 million over two years for land management and hazard reduction works uh, in the rum jungle, 2.2 million over four years to expedite the assessment of applications, and improve the administration of the new applications under the Aboriginal Heritage Protection Act, and $2 as part of the per-city deal for a Nyungar Indigenous Cultural Centre, in addition to growth in other budget areas.
4: So, Minister White, the government has said it's looking to reform the way it works with and for Indigenous Australians. As minister and as somebody who came into politics with a really strong background in Indigenous policy, what does that mean to you?
5: Well, I want to see a seven-step stage in which we engage with our people at the community level and at regional levels. Where we sit down and we talk about what is the issue in in your community, how do we do this work together, and then give the community the opportunity to develop the implementation of that program instead of bringing in contractors all the time to do the work for communities with the Aboriginal Land Council of the Northern Territory. I've been talking to them about a number of reforms, including uh, handing over some additional land under the Territory Act, but also developing an economic strategy for the use of that land. Countries like China, Asian countries want beef. There is also a heavy demand for pork within the region, so looking at what's the economic opportunity to develop agriculture and working with Peter Yu, who chairs the Indigenous Reference Group for the Northern Australian Strategy, looking at opportunities for our people to participate either in workforces or as partners or, to some extent, lead and own the work that is evolving under the Northern Australian Strategy. So it's about economic development, it's about jobs, It's about looking at creating some wealth opportunities.
4: There's been a significant expansion of the close the gap indicators after a recent reboot that you've overseen. And I guess one of the criticisms that's been made of the budget is that there's not enough additional funding for the close the gap strategy. But how are you as Minister ensuring progress to your commitments in those areas? Well, when we
5: look at the targets in closing the gap, their education, their employment, their training, their tertiary pathways. And then there's the early years, out of home care. Now, all of those are elements within other budgets. So what I'm doing is optimising those budgets. At this point, we're still working on implementation plans. So there's no sense in putting in additional money until we know what the implementation plans look like. Now, the 90000000 million that's been given to the Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations by Minister Hunt enables them to expand what they provide and offer. But this time it's slightly different. States and territory governments will have to report to their parliaments on what their efforts have been to achieve closing the gaps at the jurisdictional level. Very different to the past where the Commonwealth Took the responsibility, reported to Parliament. We will still report on what we set out to achieve, but states and territories are now in joint, so the total combined dollars for each of the targets now come into play in a way that's never been done before.
4: You did mention earlier that environmental sustainability has been given a boost with the Indigenous Basin Ranges to be funded as part of the Government's Murray Darling Basin Plan. What's involved in that strategy and why is it so important?
5: Well, caring for our waterways and traditional use of water in the Murray-Darling Basin is absolutely important. The ranges will become an integral part of caring for the Murray-Darling Basin. But in addition to that, under Minister Littleproud, $40 was set aside for Indigenous people to access their water rights as well in that whole schema that's being developed for protecting the Murray-Darling River system but also at the same time, utilising water with an eye to how it's shared within the broader community and how we sustain the ecosystems around the river. So there's a lot of work to be involved and I I know that some of our Aboriginal organisations have been engaging with uh, Minister Littleproud as Minister for Agriculture but they'll also be engaging with Minister Pitt who has responsibility in this portfolio area now
4: constitutional recognition had been very high on the Indigenous political agenda and you'd done some work in the Parliament on that issue and, of course, the Uluru Statement had also been something that's been high on the political agenda. You've focused on a process of a voice to Parliament. What can we expect to see on this moving forward?
5: Well, the voice to Parliament is, at its final iteration, there have been 18 meetings held by the three levels of advisory structuring that I established. What's been good with it is I've managed to identify people across the whole spectrum, those who are totally committed to the Uluru Statement through to those who support change of a different ilk. And I've seen the draft modelling of what they're suggesting. We'll be releasing that report in the very near future for further consultation but I'm very confident that legislation will go into the parliament next year.
4: Just finally this evening, it's been a challenging year for many of us on all fronts, particularly challenging the way that we're working and challenging the way we connect with family and friends. And it has been a while since we've had you on the show. So I was just wondering if you could share with us what you've discovered about yourself during this strange time of COVID.
5: Actually, the use of technology... I have never used Zoom like I am now and using teleconferencing to connect with a number of Aboriginal leaders and organisations in regions. And we negotiate, we set up those meetings and we have a good session on what's happening on the ground The thing that has struck me, Larissa, is the strength of our young leadership in organisations, how they came together and worked collectively and set aside their silos, but the role that elders and traditional owners have played as well at the community level. But our own communities being fearful of the fact that they did not want COVID in their communities, so they have made sure that their own approach has been interposed over the restrictions that we also placed as state and territory governments in the Commonwealth. I've learned a lot about the strength of leadership that I've not seen in a long, long time.
4: I have to say resilience is the word that keeps coming up when people reflect on that.
5: It is, and our people are. That's, that's why we have survived 65,000 years. We've not relied on others. We've done it ourselves. And during COVID, we've done it again.
4: Minister White, thank you so much for your time this evening and helping us dissect the budget, and we look forward to catching up with you again before the end of the year.
5: Thank you very much, Larissa, and you take care.
4: Minister for Indigenous Australians, Ken Wyatt.
0: You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing,
2: sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC
3: Radio.
4: As you've just heard, the recent federal budget has seen the government maintain a focus on the Close the Gap strategy, as well as commitments to boost Indigenous housing and business. In response to the coronavirus pandemic, the government has allocated support funding to help cover the cost of implementing travel restrictions to remote communities. The government has also reaffirmed its commitment to funding the Indigenous Advancement Strategy, despite critics questioning its effectiveness and processes. Lyndon Coombs is Professor of Indigenous Policy at the Jumbana Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Lyndon, thanks for joining us. No worries. What was your first impression of the budget?
2: Um, It it seemed fairly predictable to me. I think if you take out the impact of COVID and obviously there's a big hole that needed to be filled there, but this was very much a, a traditional coalition budget to me. Business incentives and tax cuts that benefit higher income earners over lower income earners. And in my view, not enough investment for some longer term issues, both within Indigenous Affairs and other areas like the environment.
4: Just before we dig a bit deeper into what the budget does and doesn't have for Indigenous people, you do work in the university sector. The government's job-ready university reforms will dramatically increase the cost of courses in the social sciences, a consistently popular discipline amongst our Indigenous students. What impact do you see this having on higher education participation rates? It's going
2: to have a significant impact. Those courses are very much a gateway for a number of students and particularly for Indigenous students and what we find is that students who come through those courses often go on to do other things. I think this is one of a number of issues within the budget where ideology probably overcame a basic impact and benefit for the community. It's another one of those short-term things that I think has been characteristic of governments generally over the last decade and probably longer, where we're not really investing in those things that are going to mean the most in the long term, things like social housing, Indigenous health, and these impacts in terms of the university sector will have a whole range of impacts. And I think that we've seen with COVID and the impacts of that, where we will find our solutions and our advantages in terms of economy will be from the university sector. I think we should have a particular reliance on on that sector and these cuts will not help that.
4: So Lyndon, what are the highlights in the budget for Indigenous people?
2: Yeah, so as part of sort of having a read over some documents, I sort of saw the media from last year and it was pretty similar. Um, There's always seems to be record spending, but no outcomes that would show that that money is being spent in an appropriate way. So $5.4 billion for the Indigenous Advancement Strategy. There's a lot of work to be done around where that money is going. Lots of other interesting things, home ownership, I thought was a particularly good one. Some money for impacts around COVID and money to the Productivity Commission to oversee the closing the gap arrangement. So I think that's particularly useful to start looking at accountability with this money, but a lot more to be done with it. Some other parts of the budget Including almost 40 million for the Clontarf Foundation, which is not Indigenous led, has not been received well by Indigenous people. And again, there are some questions over the outcomes that come from Clontarf. And so while we can roll through some millions here and some billions there, I don't feel like we're really getting the best bang for the buck, and I don't think anyone really does. We've had perennial issues with the Indigenous Advancement Strategy since it came in under the original minister, Nigel Scullion, who was handing out money to industry groups to actually oppose Aboriginal rights. So there's a lot of questions, I think, to be asked. And if we're going to highlight $5.4 billion under that strategy, then we should be very careful about the accountability and the value that it actually delivers for Indigenous people.
4: I was going to ask you if these are effective strategies, but it's pretty clear from what you're saying that you think things could be done better. What are some of the things that should be being invested in?
2: There is a little bit of money there for regional and remote decision-making, and governments have now sort of been putting forward at least the rhetoric of Indigenous-owned and led solutions. So I think that's a good thing, along with the accountability for where that money goes, I think are good steps. Indigenous river ranger groups, the ranger program I think is one of the successes of this government. In recent times, it's a great program and they should be congratulated on that. While there is a significant amount of money to Indigenous health, we're all aware of the poor outcomes that our people have in that area. And there was some criticism for the government, with around sixteen million going to specific programs, on top of the larger spend on Indigenous health. But again, when you look at the disparity in health outcomes, that investment falls short.
4: So, Lyndon, overall, who are the winners and losers in this year's budget?
2: Yeah, well, as I said, I. I saw this as a fairly, if not predictable, traditional coalition budget. So businesses, again, will be getting most of the benefit. Those on higher incomes will get a greater benefit in terms of tax cuts. And again, the most vulnerable seem to be getting left further behind. So Indigenous people, women, I note that childcare was a significant issue, a big point of difference between Labor's response and that of the coalition. So that that's generally been my concern along with public wealth being increasingly privatised. Another issue within the budget was the basics card being made a, a permanent feature for a number of communities and that has significant administration costs as well as significant social and economic costs for the people who are subject to that and we're not getting a very clear view in terms of what benefit there is from that and, again, accountability on how that money is spent and if that money could be spent in a better way. One of the things we know is that there's a $10,000 administration fee for each person on that card and that's just taxpayer money going into private hands. So those sorts of things, I think, need a lot more accountability and a, a lot more examination.
4: Overall, given the economic challenges we're now facing, is focus on business the right strategy for an economic recovery?
2: To an extent. I think that, again, this is appears to me to be predicated on trickle-down economics, which we know does not work. The idea that if we look after businesses, they will give people jobs is, I think, correct to a certain extent. But we need people who are doing it tough to be given more money to spend on those businesses, uh, particularly small businesses. And we know that people who who get that extra income are more inclined, those on lower incomes, are more inclined to spend that money rather than than save it or, or allocate it to other things which may not help the economy in terms of where we are in that cycle. So I do I do despair that this budget will overall contribute to a greater gap between the haves and the have nots.
4: These are really unprecedented and quite challenging economic times. Are Labor offering an alternative? They
2: are ish. There there are some issues such as childcare and public housing where I think Labor are offering something better also in terms of energy and the environment but it's not significantly different. Uh, So I do think there's a bit more there for those on lower incomes from a labour response but I see that um, Anthony Albanese was asked whether a labour government would reverse those fee changes for university degrees and He said he didn't have a response to that and I thought that was, you know, a free kick. That's a real point of difference for me or should be a real point of difference between the ALP and the coalition and the opposition leader was prevaricating on it. So I think it's a little bit different, but, you know, the ALP aren't going to oppose tax cuts and business incentives, so a little bit of difference, but not a lot.
4: Well, Lyndon, thank you so much for being with us this evening and helping us wade through the budget from an Indigenous perspective.
2: No worries. Thanks for having me.
4: Lyndon Coombs is Professor of Indigenous Policy at the Jumbana Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney.
5: This is Speaking Out, a national Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander affairs show produced and presented by Indigenous broadcasters on ABC Radio.
4: This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. The introduction of the Sex Discrimination Act in 1984 by the Hawke government set a precedent for similar bills to follow, including the Racial Discrimination Act that same year. Developed by the first female Labor Cabinet Minister in Australia, Susan Ryan, the legislation was the first of its kind anywhere in the world to make sexual harassment unlawful. We'll have more on Susan Ryan's remarkable legacy shortly, but right now some music from Darwin-born artist Emily Waramara. This track is called Carry Me Home and is taken from her 2018 album, Milyakbara. Burra.
0: We and red Waka, Emily, my We will trade planes, dust in my eyes. Sun in the sky, and you on my mind. Oh, 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 longing for a place, a place to call home, soft, pearly white sand to call my own, my island home. So pretty, so blue And all the trees are greener there too On my island home The spirit's still strong And I will ask the wind to carry me over. Oh, Back to my home La 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 sun and the moon She follow me Oh Wherever I go Wherever I'll be Sunrise and sunsets They're never the same Cause there are different people Around the world Sharing my gaze On my island home She's so, pretty, so blue. She's so pretty, so blue And all the trees are greener than too On my island home The spirits still strong And I will ask the wind to carry me To my home La-la-la-la-la-la-la 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 La-la-la-la-la la la she will carry me home la 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 La-la-la-la-la-la-la la 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 La, 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 la. La, 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 la. la. She'll
4: carry me home. That was Emily Waramurra with the track Carry Me Home taken from the album Milyak Burra.
2: Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of indigenous people.
4: On ABC Radio. Well, many were shocked by the sudden passing of Susan Ryan recently at 77 years of age. A Senator for the ACT from 1975 to 1988, she became a Minister in the Hawke Government in 1983 and oversaw portfolios of education, youth affairs and the status of women. Post-politics, she was Age Discrimination Commissioner from 2011 to 2016 and Disability Commissioner from 2014 to 2016. Noreen Young is the Professor of Indigenous Workplace Diversity at the Jambana Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Noreen, you knew Susan Ryan. From your perspective, what is her legacy?
3: I think the Sex Discrimination Act is without question her legacy, but I think it's far more than that. If you look at that act, it was enormous reform. It Said for the first time that in personal interactions and in structural setups, there can be discrimination. And so the introduction of the Sex Discrimination Act in 1984, and particularly the impact of it in workplaces has paved the way for the other acts and one that's very important to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is the Racial Discrimination Act in terms of the way that plays out, for example, in workplaces and in the provision of goods and services like renting houses and interactions with banks. But then there's the intersectional nature. I was looking at Facebook on the weekend and thinking about the fantastic women in business groups and and the one that Lisa Watergo set up for COVID and responses to that. And if there hadn't been a Sex Discrimination Act, women would never have been able to get loans from the bank, black, white, brindle, whatever. And so the Sex Discrimination Act affects everybody and it's affected the country. And I think that that's Susan's major legacy.
4: I was just going to actually ask you about the impact she had on Indigenous women. She came through in a time or sort of a wave of feminism that was really active in women's rights and then, I guess, along the way started to think about those issues of intersectionality, how Indigenous women, how lesbians fitted into that main sweep of Mm. women's rights changes and I wondered if you had any further reflections on Susan's legacy in relation to that.
3: I think that those women were thinking about themselves. Those second wave feminists did. Not all of them. If you think about Meredith Bergman, for example, she's someone who was always involved in the Indigenous struggle as well as being involved in the women's movement. But I think we have to be fair and say that those second wave feminists were thinking about themselves. But as they went further and further in their careers, they certainly did start to think about the intersectional aspects and I I know that it's a struggle for us to know where to put ourselves in the women's movement but I, I think that perceiving it from an intersectional point of view is really useful and I think the way to perceive the Sex Discrimination Act is that we are women too and Susan's legacy and so that's where it fits in for us.
4: I think one of the things that many of us who had the privilege of meeting Susan Ryan would have always taken away was how full of life she was. And she just Mm. seemed to grab every moment and every opportunity with such energy. And I was just wondering from a more personal point of view, how did she come across to you as a person and what will you remember about her in terms of the woman she was?
3: Well, that's exactly how she was to me, Larissa. I met her when I was at Diversity Council Australia and she was the Age Discrimination Commissioner and I thought that that was the most perfect appointment because she was someone who was gaining in years but, as you say, took every opportunity in life with such vigour. She also was very much an Irish-Australian and and we have gone to Ireland a lot and she used to sign her emails off to me where she'd be giving me tips um, with Slauncher and she gave us this tip last year actually to go to the birthplace of Seamus Heaney which is somewhere in the Midlands I forget exactly where and it was just such a typical Susan bit of advice we drove for hours for a long way in Ireland that's a long way for them to get to this place but we got there and it was absolutely worth it he's one of the poets the great poets of like contemporary poets of Ireland and my partner and I love his poetry and It was absolutely worth it. And I just thought that was such a Susan thing to do. And that was the first thing I thought of that she said to us, oh, you must go to Seamus Henney's birthplace and then told us where it was and told us we had to go there. And that was just so Susan.
4: Well, she certainly was an amazing person. But while we've got you on the show, Noreen, earlier this evening, Professor Lyndon Coombs mentioned that the federal government didn't provide great
3: outcomes for women. What was your analysis? Well, again, if you look at the budget from the intersectional viewpoint and you look at the way it's impacted on women, there are no jobs for women. There's no provision for childcare. So apart from the obvious shortcomings in provision to Indigenous people, our people are women too. And so in terms of jobs, in terms of the provision of childcare, we need that too. It impacts on us greatly. It's a very, very disappointing budget for women and for Aboriginal people.
4: I was going to ask you about Indigenous employment and the budget. Did you have any other specific reflections about
3: that? Well, there's certainly nothing new and the continuation of the CDP as it is, is really problematic. It remains discriminatory. It remains a scheme where people don't have access to wages or superannuation entitlements. There's no other scheme in Australia that operates like that. It's only for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and it's really problematic. I think we need a review of the job services system because it's not delivering for our people. So there's a whole lot of issues around the way we frame and talk about Indigenous employment that require a really long-term view, not the short-termism that this budget represents.
4: From your perspective as an expert in this area, what has been the impact of COVID-19 on the Indigenous workforce?
3: Well, I think, again, if you look at the stats, our people tend to work a lot in accommodation and tourism, for example, and the shutting down of that industry, and it's just about shut down, hospitality, accommodation and tourism has had a profound impact and it's as if the world's just stopped in terms of employment outcomes. And I know, for example, I've worked a lot with the Core Hotels Group They have worked very hard to try to get their people into other occupations, but people like working in that industry. It's an industry that makes you feel good. It's really problematic, but we also know that it's the best thing from the health viewpoint, so it's hard to complain.
4: With the ongoing challenges facing the economy, unprecedented economic challenges, are you concerned that gains made in workforce diversity will be lost?
3: I think that it's a very real danger. In my experience during the GFC, diversity was hard hit because it's one of the first things to go in businesses. As we've seen in a few articles last week around those organisations that do maintain their focus on diversity will be the ones that gain most out of this period because we know that diversity is good for business. But I think if it's seen in an organisation as A feel good and corporate social responsibility and not as a genuine thing that brings advantages to the business. And, and I think we need to stop thinking about diversity practice and particularly indigenous employment practice in what's good for business. It's what's good for Australia as well and what's good for our society. And so I think there is a real danger that a lot of diversity programs will fall by the wayside given the other things that are happening. And that is really problematic and a real danger.
4: Well, Noreen, thank you for dropping by this evening and particularly for sharing your thoughts with us on Susan Ryan. It's an honour. Nareen Young is the Professor of Indigenous Workplace Diversity at the Jambana Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney.
0: This is Speaking Out.
4: That's the key to it all, keeping connected to
0: country. On ABC Radio.
4: When Lydia Thorpe was sworn into federal parliament earlier this month, she entered the chamber with a raised fist, a show of solidarity to the families of the growing number of Indigenous Australians who have died in police custody. The gesture was as powerful as it was symbolic and marked the beginning of what is an historic appointment. A political trailblazer, grassroots activist and social justice advocate, the former Victorian state MP has made the switch to federal politics and hopes to shake things up in the process. Lydia Thorpe, welcome back to Speaking Out.
1: Thanks for having me. Great to be here.
4: What were your reflections on being sworn into Parliament? How did that feel?
1: Well, you know, there was a lot of hype leading up to it. And I was, you know, a little bit nervous the day before. But I must say that being welcomed by traditional owners and, you know, going through a a ceremony down at the Aboriginal Tent Embassy just empowered me and and gave me strength to continue to walk up to Parliament House and and start my job. It was just the energy that I needed at that particular time. It's always been part of my protocol is to yarn with the elders and people of that land and that's exactly what I did and you know by being granted permission to work on their country and know that they're available when I'm in Canberra, that just reassured me and made me more confident to walk in there knowing I had the backing of my people.
4: You grew up really strongly in your culture and you grew up in a housing commission in Melbourne. How did this upbringing help shape your worldview?
1: Uh, Well, it makes you tough. You know, our people have been through so much in the last 240 years. Our old people, our ancestors fought and died for us to be here today. And I see that as no different and and that we as Aboriginal people have a responsibility to continue their legacy of continuing to care for and protect country, but also care for and protect one another on this journey. And so there's certainly been hard times, tough times and times where, you know, I just felt like that it was all too consuming. But throughout that whole time, my fight for my people had had never stopped at any time, regardless of my personal situations. And I think that's what gets me up each and every day And, and growing up in public housing, Part of a community, not just you know an Aboriginal community, but quite a, a multicultural community where a lot of those people had the same values as we did, and that was to look after one another and make sure that we were safe when we were hanging out at the basketball court down at the bottom of the flats and Yeah, so that just gave me that grounding, I suppose, and and that is that we have to look after our most vulnerable people because I know what it's like to struggle and I know that too many people out there in this country are facing that same struggle every single day.
4: Federal politics, why now, and as somebody who's been staunchly an advocate for change, often outside the system, you're in the system now, why did you choose this path?
1: I think the path chose me. It's not something that I, you know, set out to do. It wasn't a career choice. I don't think I ever really had a career choice. I just went with what came up next, as long as it was positions where I could make a difference to our people's lives. So, yeah, being in the Senate, I'm still coming to terms with it, to be honest. But to be able to elevate grassroots black voices in that place is something that I don't think has been represented yet. And I will continue to fight for our people. You know, there's a lot of unfinished business. We've got too many deaths of our people and too much destruction of our country. And I think that, you know, all Australians, if once they know the truth, will get on board And I'm, you know, I want to be part of that truth telling to try and get the rest of this country to stamp out these, continued injustices and, and human rights violations against this country's first people
4: you've been a long advocate for reform in the criminal justice system black deaths in custody has been something that you've always campaigned on and this year's put a spotlight on that issue more broadly with the black lives matter movement and it's really galvanized the broader Australian public how do you see the momentum that's come this year with the black lives matter movement being maintained and Why is it so important?
1: Well, I think, you know, Australians were shocked at the treatment of George Floyd and and those horrific scenes of, of that police officer kneeling on his neck to the point where he couldn't breathe and as a result died. You know, that really shocked a lot of people in this country and for this country to then be told uh, actually this happens here quite regularly and we've we even had a royal commission about this and they haven't implemented all of those recommendations from that royal commission so it's I think it's been a rude awakening that the mirror has been put back on ourselves and what we're doing with our first Peoples here in our own country and Uh, I think that movement has only grown and it will continue to grow and we will continue to fight to have those recommendations implemented. I feel that, you know, the government thinks that it's done its job and wiped their hands, but the numbers are growing. With 441 deaths in custody to date, I think is just outrageous given, you know, we are only 3% of this population and people are dying from the most ridiculous reasons or or, or stealing a chocolate bar or stealing a car or unpaid fines that should not be a death sentence so why is it a death sentence for our people
4: juvenile justice reform has also been a priority for you in that area what do you see as the successes and failures of the way the justice system currently deals with our young people
1: Well, we need justice reinvestment. We need to move away from building new prisons and and locking people up where it costs the taxpayers far more than a preventative program that would work in their own communities. And that's where communities need to be empowered and be given the resources to run these preventative programs based around culture, based around connection, so that our young people are growing up strong and strong about their identity. But when we have our children being taken away at the rate that they are, more so now than the stolen generation. These children, you know, as I said, one child that I know of was is locked up for stealing a chocolate bar. And if that's what we're doing to our young people, then we need to really look at ourselves as a country and review and, and repeal a lot of these. I think, racist laws that will continue to lock our people up. We need to raise the age of criminal responsibility to 14, which is in line with other countries around the world. If we did that today, we would see 600 children released from prison tomorrow. So there's simple steps that we could take as a country that will ultimately save taxpayers millions of dollars.
4: The federal budget has allocated funds to facilitate an expansion of the controversial cashless welfare card. You've been strongly opposed to this welfare strategy. For those who are unaware, what are your criticisms?
1: Oh, I think that's against our human rights. I mean, we should be able to self-determine what we want and people need to decide what they want to do with their own money. I've seen a lot of racism being thrown around as part of this debate. But, you know, why are we always the guinea pigs for things like the CDEP, the Commonwealth Development Employment Program, and now the cashless welfare card? Why is it that Aboriginal people become the guinea pigs for these Disgusting, I think, racist laws that only discriminate one group of people, and that's our people. I know of stories of families that have been waiting outside shops because their car didn't work or they'd exhausted the amount on a certain product, and kids are lining up hungry. You know, there's a lot of stories out there like that, and no one should have to decide how we spend our own money. We need to have these programs in place that are self-determined by the people in those communities that build the capacity of our people.
4: You've been a strong advocate for a treaty. Are you comfortable with the states taking leadership on this issue and how would you like to see greater involvement on a federal level? Look, it, I must
1: you know, congratulate the states and the territories for having a conversation on treaty. However, I find it disappointing that whilst we're talking about treaty in these states and territories, you know, if you look at the NT, they're having a conversation there, but they're also lifting the moratorium on fracking. So that ultimately displaces Aboriginal people from their lands, it destroys country and all of the other added effects that it has on, on the people, including incarceration. So displacement should not happen while we're talking about negotiating an agreement and a way forward. And, And if we look at Victoria, they're selling off Crown land, they're logging country, they're denying cultural heritage protection and our incarceration rate, particularly for Aboriginal women in Victoria, has skyrocketed over 300%. So I just can't understand how you could want to be friends and negotiate a way forward when you're still implementing oppressive laws that discriminate against our people. And finally, sorry, just Queensland, you know, when they extinguish native title of the Wanganjungaloo people to build the Adani coal mine and still want to sit down and talk about a treaty and and a way forward. Well, it's pretty hard when you've got people fighting for their life and fighting for their country and then wanting to sit down and be all happy to talk treaty So I think that's a real issue that the states and territories need to look at and show some good faith and then get people at the table that aren't struggling with their basic survival or or their basic survival of their land or water. And in terms of a federal or a national approach, well, I think, you know, we've got so many different clans and nations around this country, they need to be acknowledged in their own right. They all need to self-determine whether they want to be a part of this or not. But we also need to uh, educate the wider community, the Australian population on what treaty is and what it can look like because a treaty with Aboriginal people in this country will benefit the rest of this nation. It's about you know, our identity as a nation. It's about us coming together and being able to celebrate together. We're so divided here in Australia that I believe that treaty is a mechanism to bring people together and negotiate a way forward.
4: Obviously, it's a strategy within the Uluru Statement and there's a view that it needs to be a voice, treaty and truth in that order. That's one view. What is your view about that?
1: Well, I think that we need truth telling first and foremost. From my experience and from what I'm hearing on the ground is people don't even know the history of this country. So truth-telling is imperative for the rest of this population to come along on a journey. I think treaty needs to come after that. So once everyone understands the invasion and what that did to our people and how our people and land were decimated as a result of that, I think we then talk about, okay, this is our our way forward for healing. What's important to you or for you to be able to move forward? And that's a treaty negotiation. And then if constitutional recognition or a voice to parliament is something that people want as a result of those treaty negotiations and conversations, then absolutely that should be in there. But The statement is saying, let's jump into the constitution before we talk about treaty. And I just believe that that's around the wrong way. The voice to parliament has not reached all clans and nations around this country. There were a number of, or hundreds of, if not thousands of Aboriginal people that did not get invited to that meeting at Uluru. So we need to go back to the people and ask what their priority is. And until such time, it can't be anybody else dictating what the people want the most. And I just want to see genuine conversation and consultation with the people on the ground because they're the ones that this will ultimately
4: affect. Senator Lydia Thorpe, thank you so much for giving me some time on speaking out this evening and sharing your thoughts and showing us what a difference you're going to make at the federal level. We wish you all the best in your new role. My
1: pleasure. Thanks for having
4: me. Lydia Thorpe is a Green Senator for Victoria. That's the show for this week. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Barrett, and this is Speaking Out.